Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome to LawPod with my friend and colleague, Dr. Eilish Ward, formerly of NUI Galway University and currently a practicing uh, psychotherapist. Eilish, welcome to LawPod. We're going to talk about your wonderful new book called Self, which in many ways brings together various strands of your biography, your professional biography, but also your your biography as a, a Zen practitioner. But I'd like to begin by asking you to uh, introduce yourself, and the, the various strands of your professional life and your practice life that have led to the uh, the writing of the, the volume. Thank you very much, Peter, and thank you for this opportunity. And uh, I, I have a little cough at the moment. It's a little asthma cough. So I apologize if I splutter every now and then. It can't be helped. I have been practicing as a Zen practitioner for several decades. And I took early retirement from my life as an academic, a political scientist in NUIG about 18 months ago. Part of that was to devote some more time to my Zen practice, but also to develop some, uh, I have done some training in psych, I've done training in psychotherapy. So I'm working as a psychotherapist at the moment, pre-accredited, but working towards that uh, accreditation. Um, so the book then, uh, Self, which we're here to talk about, came out about, it was published just last autumn. Um, and so I've been working on that book for about five or six years, really, uh, long before my uh, early retirement. But the early retirement gave me the opportunity to send it in a slightly different direction from which it would have otherwise gone. It was It sort of began as a more scholarly book. And in the end, as I became much more interested in the emotional life of the neoliberal subject and also beginning to reflect a little bit more on my own, you know, being retired as an academic gave me the opportunity to bring in a little bit more of my own biography into the book. So I try and draw in some narratives from my own life where relevant, where they illustrate something helpful or interesting. Eilish, at the early part of the book, when you talk about the inspiration and the uh, the source of the work, you refer to uh, a, a story about an encounter with one of your students. I wonder if you could recall that for us. Yeah, that was a a very critical encounter in the life of the book because I had been thinking about these ideas from a kind of a distant scholarly perspective and doing some reading and. Um, but being very aware all the while of the way in which neoliberalism was having an impact on every individual, myself included as a worker, as an employee, as a, as a human being in this neoliberal world. And this encounter just brought really into my office on a very quiet and very dark February day, the reality, the extent to which neoliberalism had been internalized in particular by younger people. I felt the inter degree of internalization 
was quite extreme. So this was a student, a postgraduate student, um, and we were talking about future career possibilities and I was encouraging her to think about writing a thesis which would allow her make a transition into where she, where she wanted to go next with her career. And she had struck me as being a very bright and competent and very able and very talented student and young and energetic and so on. And she sort of faltered a little bit when I asked her to think a little bit about, well, you know, where do you see yourself going next? And she kind of confessed reluctantly that she'd been out with a bunch of her fellow students, her students from her undergraduate degree um, the previous weekend. And um, presumably sometime towards the end of the evening, once they got over their initial conversation and chat, they began to confess to each other that they were all feeling very depressed and hopeless about their futures. And how they explained it to each other and how she explained it to me was, so these were very young people in their early 20s starting out on their life. She said that they, they all felt that they had, they had failed to become dot-com entrepreneurs. They had failed to set up businesses. They had failed uh, to have, you know, big internet profiles, followings, um, and they failed even, she said, as social entrepreneurs. You know, they hadn't kind of set up organizations to rescue animals or feed the hungry or solve world poverty and so on. So uh, it, it, it had a big impact on me because I thought this wasn't just the usual context of young people we all go through this in our in our young life, and some people never some people never get over this stage. But you know, trying to figure out where we belong in the world, and so it was a little bit more than just that kind of young person's struggle to belong. And the reason I felt it was different was because the notion of the entrepreneur was what she understood to be the norm against which they measured themselves, and against this measure of the entrepreneur, they were already failures. So even before their lives had begun, they considered themselves because they weren't entrepreneurial enough. They weren't, they didn't show that kind of entrepreneurial capacity or ability or dyna dynamism that they were already failures. And I, I found this to be quite disturbing. Um, so the, it, in a way, this story experience was a catalyst for thinking a little bit differently about the neoliberal subject as very present, very embodied, deeply embodied, particularly amongst younger people. Is the uh, university context important when we think about the entrepreneurial self, um, you know, the, the university as an institution? Um, just given the fact that that conversation took place within a very specific context, um, do you think about neoliberalism and the institution of the university uh, in relationship or are these separate things? I didn't think about the context of the university in any way other than to think that these were all students who were quite privileged, actually. Um, students with good degrees, young people with good degrees from good university. Um, this was a postgraduate student, you know, young, bright, you know, well-educated, going out into the world. Um, and already feeling themselves to be failures. So in that sense, it felt it, it was sort of indicative of the depth, I think, to which neoliberal subjectivity had been internalized or was internalized. 
I, I didn't think uh, much beyond that in terms of maybe maybe you have some insights there. Maybe there's something you're thinking of. Yes, no, I I I, I don't want to divert the conversation too much, but clearly there the, there are observations about the neoliberalisation of the university as an institution, um, and the the, the care uh, that the university owes to students and staff, given the uh, the risks that accompany that kind of culture of uh, super competitiveness and self-critique, deep self-criticism. Yeah. Um, let's move on then to your ideas around the neoliberal self, and then we'll talk about where that converges with your interest in uh, Zen Buddhist uh, philosophy. But let's just map out um, what you mean by the neoliberal self and the importance of that as a, as part of our subjectivity, our experience, and how it goes well beyond the field of economics. Yeah, so maybe a good way of thinking about this in terms of just making some general statements before I say anything very specific is that we can think about, you know, what, maybe we need to think a little bit about what is neoliberalism because it's, um, you know, it, it, it is a term that's very widely used. Um, and, and yes, you're absolutely correct. It is more than just a, a set of economic policies or a set of economic doctrines. Basically, neoliberalism is the only game in town at the moment in terms of how we organize ourselves socially, how we organize our polities and how we organize our society. But the ideas of neoliberalism as a particular kind of a particular stage of late capitalism were originally exclusively meant to be sort of ideas about the market and have now kind of extended into every aspect of our lives. So we're talking about marketization, commercialization, um, uh, shrinking of the state, uh, ideas of austerity, perhaps as a permanent state of being. And for me, I think a very good way of thinking about neoliberalism is that it it shrinks or reduces or invalidates the collective aspect of lives, the, the commons, ideas of public good or social goods. And it became very clear to me that while we think about neoliberalism and the shrinkage of, let's say, the welfare state and and the emergence of, uh, of you know, private health insurance and private schooling and many dimensions of the ways in which market forces have penetrated every aspect of our lives, including the kind of schools we choose for children, how we behave on dating, you know, online dating sites and so on. So the out there of neoliberalism, all of that, I began to see that that was matched by an in here, if you like, in the psyche of us as neoliberal subjects, as, as individuals living and working and, and loving and raising families and being educated in a thoroughly neoliberal world. So it became clear to me that as I was doing the reading, reading the scholarly literature, that there is a kind of a human being that is required to survive or not in this neoliberal world. And that's the neoliberal subject. And that the psyche of that neoliberal subject has been shaped and affected by neoliberalism as a set of, if you like, the external conditions or the out there. So neoliberalism brings insecurity. You can think here about the gig economy as the norm, especially again for young people. We can think about the flexibility and the uh, precarity that constitute neoliberalism. And again, especially for young people. 
And we can also think especially about the degree to which we are all being required to compete with each other for housing, for car parking space, for education, for just about everything. We have to compete for space on the motorway, getting into work in the morning, and then we compete for space to park our cars and so on. So that kind of out there of a deeply competitive world requires an in here and that affects the psyche. So I, you know, through my reading of the literature on, on this kind of neoliberal subject, I, it's, there's some very interesting literature which identified the, the, the beginnings of this, the emergence of this neoliberal subject um, in the 1980s in the UK, for instance, during the period of Thatcherism, when she made the case that there is no such thing as society. So if there's no such thing as society, then how do we as humans relate to each other in this as we co-habit or co-inhabit space? And under neoliberalism, it's through competition. So it seemed to me that the psyche of the neoliberal subject is primarily determined by two qualities. One is competitiveness and the second is, is autonomy. So I developed a, um, an acronym, a very nice handy little acronym. Uh, I did a lot of reading and I sort of, you know, there are multiple dimensions, but I reduced the uh, um, complexity of the neoliberal subject to this acronym, which is CARP, C-A-R-R-P. So it's competitiveness, autonomy, autonomy from others, responsabilization, being responsibilized, resilient, perfectible, and always and necessarily positive because the neoliberal subject is also required to be cheerful and positive, even in the face of great difficulties, because difficulties make you stronger and better. So the book um, treats all of these characteristics. And I certainly found myself agreeing with one of the Nicholas Rose, who's a, a British sociologist who first wrote about this. Um, who made the case that the emergence of the entrepreneur self as entrepreneur of self constitutes what he called a revolution in human affairs. That this was something that was quite particular and quite different to this particular stage of late capitalism. Because it's not that, you know, resilience and positivity and competitiveness you know, have never been around before, or it's not that some element of those is not, you know, is under, you know, is um, some element of those is desirable. We need to be resilient. Um, we, we, you know, we need to uh, um, have a degree of positivity and willingness to get up every day and go out and so on and work. And, and But under neoliberalism, all of these, these criteria or qualities function as a social norm to regulate our behavior, but also they contain um, punishments for failures, the failure to behave appropriately. So for instance, if somebody is unhappy under conditions of neoliberalism, we might see that unhappiness is actually indicative of some kind of defect, a personal defect or a personal failure or a failure of the person. So uh, CARP, uh, and I, I, I give, you know, plenty of examples in the book of, you know, responsabilization and resilience and positivity and perfectibility and so on as, as elements or as constituting 
the self under conditions of neoliberalism. It strikes me when you describe the neoliberal self in those terms that there are many institutions and individuals who would who would say, well, so what? Um, that's precisely the kind of individual individual that you want to cultivate uh, in order to thrive uh, in a global competitive economy. Um, so I wonder if I could just invite you to be a little bit more explicit in your own normative assessment uh, of where that revolution, uh, as Rose puts it, uh, takes us, you know, just be a little bit uh, more explicit about the, the, the judgment you want to make about the, the circumstances that individuals find themselves in having internalized these, uh, these norms. I think it comes back to the notion of autonomy and competitiveness. And what the neoliberal self is missing, if you like, is a sense of social, of the social or connection with others, by which I don't just mean having friends and having people to go out and socialize with, but at the core of self is a view of the self that is isolated, uh, individualistic, autonomous, separate from others. And, and it is that unit which the entrepreneur of self works on to enhance that self. And what's missing is connection and what's missing is relationship. And to take a psychological dimension on it, we, we also know from all of the literature, there's a, you know, a lot of literature on happiness. You know, when are we happiest? Well, we are happiest when we are with others, doing things which we love with others, in which the ego is, has been put aside or the sense of self has been put aside. It's called the state of flow. In other words, we are happiest when we are deeply kind of acting out of a, of a place of interdependency or, or of relationship. So um, now there may be some who would dispute that and say they're very happy when they're, you know, on their own um, at their computer, um, communicating with the world. But um, the literature certainly says otherwise. And um, the, the other dimension is that neoliberalism has coincided with what is sometimes, and I think not correctly, but it's sometimes characterized certainly in the media, as a tsunami of what are called mental health problems. Um, and again, there's data that shows that um, rates of uh, anxiety, depression, um, I guess those two are, are probably the biggest anxiety, depression, but also loneliness are extremely high now and are higher now than they have been at other times. And also are higher in... Um, Western societies than in non-Western societies, and even then within some Western societies more than others. So, and the case I make, and again, drawing from literature, is that this is actually a function of or, or a result of our increased neoliberal society, society or um, a, a function of um, the kind of isolation and atomized individuals that are required under conditions of neoliberalism. So in other words, it's making us sick. Neoliberalism is making us sick, mentally unwell, emotionally unwell. And, and partly this is because of the loss of self. And I guess this is where I maybe need to start thinking about 
a Buddhist account of the self because uh, when I was thinking about all of this, um, indeed, your your question was constantly in my mind, you know, well, this is how it is now, people would say, we just have to get on with it and we have to learn to be flexible and, you know, uh, accept that this is this is the reality. There is no alternative, as Margaret Thatcher used to say. So I turned to a, a Buddhist account of the self as a way of both offering us an alternative view of the self, but also of a way of providing a ground on which to critique neoliberal subjectivity. Okay, yeah, no, I, that, that is the fascinating context for the, the book uh, where, and, you know, you, so you're, you're part of a, uh, a, a group of scholars now who are turning to um, Buddhist and in particular uh, Zen Buddhist uh, philosophy and practice um, as a theoretical or philosophical framework with which to uh, render visible in many ways the, the neoliberal predicament. Um, it, it, in some ways, you know, it, it provides a point of exteriority and critique uh, for uh, this kind of Western uh, legacy, if you like. So let's let, let, let's look at, first of all, um, some of the key uh, concepts um, that Buddhism offers in terms of our understanding of the self. Um, and then we'll uh, look at ways in which you've applied these concepts to your interrogation of neoliberalism. One of the things I'd like to say is that uh, there, are, there are, of course, many different kinds of Buddhisms. Um, and the Buddhism that I draw on mostly in, um, in the book is a, a Western Zen account of, of Buddhism. So when I speak about Buddhism, I, I, what I'm really speaking about is Zen Buddhism. And it's helpful maybe to think here about what happened to Zen Buddhism when it, when it landed in the US initially. Um, particularly in the 1960s and 70s, it met with the civil rights movement, the, the environmental movement, the women's movement, all kinds of new social movements that were trying to articulate, find, you know, find a place or, or articulate a place which rejected some dominant Western values. Um, so Zen Buddhism, particularly American Zen Buddhism, tends to be very dynamic and very linked to social action and social engagement. So that's the kind of Buddhism that I'm particularly interested in. Um, but back to a Buddhist account of the self. Um, it, in essence, to use that term, we can say that a, a Buddhist account of the self says that the self is empty of permanency. Um, and maybe you could help me, if, maybe you might also articulate this better than I, I can, because uh, it's, it can be sometimes quite difficult to articulate this concept because it's meant to be experienced rather than grasped in the mind. So a Buddhist account of the self, it, you know, kind of, it, it, we, can, we can experience it when we sit in Buddhist meditation or in Zen meditation. What we experience is um, not something permanent and stable and eternal that exists inside us, but actually we we have this sense of our our openness, our boundarylessness, our connection to the world, um, this the 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 notion that we are a kind of continuously generating ourselves in our interactions with others, with the material world, with our pets, with our, you know, our technology, with the weather and so on. We are 
in flux and in flow rather than, uh, it, you know, it is not the case that, that at the core of our being is something eternal and permanent and stable. So sometimes that's called um, no self, but I'm a little bit, re- I'm always reluctant to use that term because no self can, people can hear that as something very nihilistic. Um, that there isn't, self does not exist, that I do not exist. It can become nihilistic. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. It's, it's something that's very generative, very, very connected, deeply connected, very kind of joyous and open and dynamic. Um, so that's the idea of emptiness of self. So in Zen Buddhism, we'd say that, you know, the self is empty of permanency, but it is full of everything else in any particular moment. I think that hand refers to interbeing, so that inter-being. It's, it's it's very close to that sense that it's uh, um, well, we use the word intersubjectivity, so it's it's not a million miles away from that sense that uh, the the self is a construct that is uh, a dynamic relationship with all of the elements that are not immediately identified with the self. So it's, it's yes. a, a form of exchange, if you like, or symbolic exactly. exchange. Yeah. Yeah. A, a difference might be, however, is that ideas about intersubjectivity can include an idea that we each have a soul, for instance. Um, so even if you're not a religious person, you might still believe that somewhere deep, somewhere, we usually point to our chests, or our hearts, or somewhere in our bodies to say, in there is something that's particular to me and that's unique and it's, it's permanent, it's mine and it's eternal. And it may go on beyond after I die, after my body, you know, rots and dies. Um, it, will, it, it may go on. Whereas uh, a, a, a Buddhist account of the self will say that such, a, such an entity does not exist. And we don't have that kind of eternal, unique thing that's very particular to me, that's permanent. Um, so it's slightly different from, I, I think there may be some differences there. Okay, yeah. so you um, introduce some uh, Buddhist uh, concepts. So you've addressed, yeah, that notion of the non-self. Um, and then you, I mean, it, it would help maybe to uh, go a little bit deeper into what that means if you talk about the the Skanda model um, and uh, the the experience of uh, Anatta, the non-self. And it, yeah, when you you deal with it conceptually, it, it might also be a useful moment to, if you don't mind, uh, maybe reflect on your own experience of this uh, form of the self as interbeing in your practice, you know, is it a, is it something that you can report uh, as a first-hand experience? Is it a kind of an empirical experience that you can report from your practice? But let, let's uh, go into some of those concepts that appear in the book and offer a bit of an explanation. What do you mean by the, the Skanda model, for example? Yeah, so um, Skanda is the term that's used, it's translated into English as an aggregate. And the idea, what I'm about to talk about um, and try and explain is an explanation for how it is we come to believe that there is an I that is permanent and stable and eternal. Um, So the idea is that in every moment there's a process that's kind of quite complex and that is often beyond our conscious 
awareness. In fact, most of the time it's beyond our conscious awareness. It's habit very often. Um, and there are also cultural norms and standards that we internalize from, you know, childhood through socialization and so on. And the idea is that there are th these skandhas or aggregates that engage with each other in this continuous process of flow in every moment, which produces a sense of self and which at the end of that process, we think, oh, well, that's me again. I'm the person who, I'm the kind of person who, whatever. Um, and that we think that this experience that we're having, that, that this kind of uh, uh, complex process that's beyond conscious awareness, uh, which is to do with information that we receive through sight and sound and touch, but also our mental habits and mental formations and the way we think about the world. I suppose the significant departure um, in Buddhism is the way in which the uh, the, the senses include our cognitive uh, functions, you know, that... Uh, so that our the, the world that we construct, including the world of the self, um, is a function of the collective data from the senses, including our 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 mind, I suppose. Um, is is that what you're beginning to to share? Is that the aspect that you want to explain? Yes. No. I think I think that's I think that's exactly it. Um, so. You know, we're constantly receiving information through our senses and our, 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 our brains basically do something with that information. And, and what our brains do with that information has been shaped by all kinds of other things. And we tend to see the same things over and over and over again. If we're somebody who's, you know, feeling a little bit hard done by in the world, we'll always find evidence of, you know, of being, being hard done by. Um, uh, so our habits, our expectations and our prejudices and so on are all sort of conceptualized by and in our mind and constantly being reinforced by information that we receive. Um, and sometimes we, we're not even aware of it, but we go looking for sense data that confirms what we already believe. So we can see how this gets played out in racism and sexism and so on. Okay. But from the point of view of a Buddhist sense of the self, what this idea of the skanda says is that this is a process that's continuously going on beyond our conscious awareness. And the outcome of this process is, all, is, is usually, again, unconsciously some sense of, well, that's me and that's how I think about things. And I'm the kind of person who, to whom these kind of things always happen. Um, and we believe that we, in that process, we are um, um, separate from all the other things happening around us. Okay, I, I wonder if we could uh, just invite you then to um, report a little bit on how we uh, experience the self uh, in a distinctive way um, as a Buddhist practitioner or a Zen Buddhist practitioner so that you give a flavor of how um, these ideas are manifest or embodied um, as a practitioner of uh, meditation and other forms of excuses associated with the Buddhist tradition? Perhaps we could think about it as when we sit on our little meditation cushions or zafus as we call them in Zen and we still our minds and we calm our bodies and we hold a posture that is still and 
the first thing we realize is probably is the noise going on in our heads um, and the continuous flow of thoughts coming and going. Um, and we realize that we're not in charge, actually, of what's of the information that's coming. We're not in charge of the thoughts that are arising. They're continuously arising. Um, and we may try and control them and try and stop them, but in fact, we can't. We can certainly minimize over time. We can develop the habit of reducing the impact and the escalatory dimension of those thoughts and so on. Um, but when we sit very quietly and calmly, we realize that we are actually, the sense data and the stories and the thoughts are in, in, in a way passing through us um, rather than being generated by us from within us. So it reveals that deep connection that we are, the deep connection that we are involved in continuously. There's um, an American writer called Polly Eisendrath Young, who has a very nice way of thinking about it. She says, we are all involved in a fizz, the fizz of life, um, continuously being involved in a fizz. We are just one of many beings involved in this fizz which is all sorts of other beings creating, you know, creating their own worlds. So we realize, I think, when we're sitting that there's very little that's constant and stable apart from our physical bodies. And the physical body becomes a kind of a refuge, if you like, for, you know, we can, we can remain stable and, you know, we can remain kind of comfortable and secure in our physical bodies. But that our minds, our minds are um, in constant flux. Okay, so no, the, the the fascinating bit of this story is um, where does that bring us in terms of interrogating, deconstructing, understanding the neoliberal self? Um, you know, does the, the the Zen Buddhist literature and practice and philosophy offer us something? unique in terms of meeting this neoliberal moment um, and how we might uh, uh, maybe adapt in a more healthy way to these conditions. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the, uh, the, the insights from Zen Buddhism have uh, allowed you to interrogate and maybe offer some insights into how we, we meet this particular uh, moment, the neoliberal moment? Let's take environmental issues. I think this might be a good way of thinking about it. And, and this is, again, your area, one of your areas of expertise. And I know, I know you have worked in this area too, so you, know, you may have something to say. If we think about the environmental crisis as something that's happening out there, then we, we fail to see the fact that we are all creating and part of this environmental crisis. You know, a Buddhist approach would encourage us to think about the, what we, you know, call the natural world or nature as having inherent value. We value it for all, you know, we, we can value it for all kinds of reasons, for its beauty, for, you know, pleasure, uh, for what it provides for us. Um, but neoliberalism has encouraged us based on the idea of the autonomous being, the competitive individual. Uh, who must go forth and in the, you know in a competitive way aggregate resources to support the self to compete with others this approach to the self encourages a kind of a a worldview which sees the natural world as inert 
uh, as there for our purposes, as there to be conquered, um, as there to support us in our needs and our, our individual needs and our individual desires and requirements. Um, a, a Buddhist account of the self, which sees the self as deeply and intimately linked to all other beings and the natural world in rocks, trees, birds, you know, plants, flowers, um, would discourage that kind of exploitative approach to the natural world and to, uh, and, and, uh, you know, to how we view the natural world, because it encourages us to think very differently about how we relate to the world around us. Okay, and the um, I'm just wondering if if we could also um, highlight the way in which the the practices of Zen Buddhism foreground the quality of our attention uh, in uh, in the experience and cultivation of this uh, relationship to the to the self, this dynamic self. The, the idea uh, of attention is very important and it's something that we take, I suppose, paradoxically, we take more responsibility for within the context of uh, Zen practice. Um, can you say a little bit about the importance of the uh, attention economy um, and the way in which the Buddhist insights uh, invite us to take care of the quality of our attention uh, especially in a hyper-mediatized age, with all of the consequences that flow from that, including the environmental consequences. Is that, is that one of the connections that you want to make, or is that something that's quite extraneous, maybe more particular to my own work? I, I think it may be. I, I know you have written about and you know talked a lot about the attention economy and um, and the, the capturing of our attention that, that is ongoing. And, and, and I think... Per- I don't directly talk about it, partly because you know others have 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 written about it. Um, but certainly, you know, neoliberalism and the neoliberal self is a restless um, kind of sensation-hungry kind of individual um, who you know ca- cannot kind of rest in one place. Must always be competing, uh, watching out for the self. Um, continuously having to upgrade the self, retrain, um, look good, engage continuously in you know new technology, multimedia levels of of engagement. Uh, a, a Buddhist self, I guess, is <laughs> ideally uh, a kind of a a very different beast, um, or at least somebody with a Zen practice or with a, a Buddhist practice is continuously the encouragement or the invitation with the Buddhist practice is continuously to be present to this precise moment, in any moment to this precise moment. So it brings the attention back to the self and in relationship to the immediate wor- the world immediately around the self. I'm, I'm not quite clear uh, about the, the insight that you're bringing in terms of how we uh, might encounter or uh, navigate the neoliberal institutions and culture differently, uh, given what you've said about the, the, the Buddhist insights. And I'm wondering, is, is one way to think about the contribution of Zen Buddhism, uh, is it to think about the, the understanding and insights into the forms of human suffering 
And are you saying that in some ways that the neoliberal culture targets and uh, amplifies those forms of suffering, uh, dukkha, in the language of the Buddha? Yeah, I mean, one one of the things that we didn't really talk about is is an argument I make about something called the therapy culture. Um, so much of the book really focuses on kind of ontological questions, the nature of being rather than action, rather than engagement, rather than critique. Um, so I'm trying to set out a, a, a kind of a framework for understanding the ontological condition of the self and and the competing or the different kind of ontology that Buddhism contains. Um, consequences, I guess, are something else or, or what to do with that thinking is, some, is something else. But one of the arguments I make in the book is that we are suffering as humans in under conditions of neoliberalism. Um, and, and I do think young people in particular, you and I have an, have had experiences of uh, a different kind of world. And I think young people in particular are suffering greatly. And that is showing up in the data in on um, emotional mental health issues. But alongside the emergence of neoliberalism has been something called therapy culture. And in therapy culture, we find that ideas from within psychotherapy and, and, and psychological understanding have become kind of popularized um, and are played out and circulate in a very soft way in the wider culture. And these ideas appear to be offering us some way of minimizing our suffering, offering us things like classes in mindfulness or instructions in happiness or um, wellness courses or books on wellness, um, how to manage our well-being, um, the emphasis on physical, you know, the physical self and exercise, and, you know, um, perfect uh, nutrition. Um, but therapy culture and all of those things, again, it, it's very difficult to be really critical of, of those things, to be absolutely critical of those things. But therapy culture is a very particular thing which contains um, an idea that the solution to all of our unhappiness, whatever it is, and all of our suffering is within each of us individually as isolated beings, not through collective action such as trade union action or, um, or collaborative you know, social movement politics and so on. So therapy culture delivers back to us again the neoliberal self as the solution to the problems of the neoliberal self. And it creates a kind of a, it's, it's a world that's very difficult to step out of because the, you know, therapy culture, which we, uh, which, you know, is evident in, 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 in all forms of media um, all the kind of popular, the ways in which these ideas from psychotherapy have been popularized. Um, it's constantly circulating, uh, constantly uh, in our faces. I guess in that sense, I'm saying that a Buddhist account or a Zen account allows us cut through that by saying that the true nature of being is not a, a, an autonomous competitive individual, but a deeply related, rela a relational social being. So the solution to our ha unhappiness is relationships, is, is the social, is the social world, is engagement, connection. Um, I, the book doesn't really go beyond that to speak about political action or so, social action, although it's it's kind of, you know, it's implied in a way. Yes, but it's important that you're reporting that that ontological uh, 
reality, if you like, is accessible through your practice. You know, so there's an interesting. Yes. It reminds me of uh, Foucault's uh, observation. You know that our our first point of contact with power is through our own experience of body and self, in a way. You know? Yes, our yeah. bodies, and yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, some some of this book has also been informed a little bit by a kind of a frustration I, I have had over the years with, you know, politics of the, my own politics on the left or feminist politics. Well, feminist politics, perhaps less so, but certainly left wing politics, which doesn't really pay attention to ontological questions, the nature of self. Um, you know, it assumes that the acting being, the person who acts, uh, is sort of fully formed and and, uh, and and resilient and solid and stable and can go forth. Um, so in a way, the book is trying to kind of make the connection between the deeper ontological sense of self and political economy. And, and it's sort of circling around in, in, in that world rather than moving out into the realm of action. Yes. It's interesting that the Extinction Rebellion groups actively uh, include care of the self um, as part of their practice, you know, they're, as part of the 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 ecological movement it appears that there is a, a recognition that uh that ontology and uh, practices of the self and self-care within the uh context of challenging structures damaging structures that that has to be part of the the toolbox if you like mm. can we end uh, i was interested there you you mentioned that therapy culture includes rather paradoxically, uh, the practices of mindfulness, uh, because I, I, I suspect that uh, listeners, when they hear you talk about Zen Buddhism, would not make a, a vast distinction between you know, popular ideas of Zen Buddhism and mindfulness. Um, but you, I think what you're suggesting there is that um, mindfulness as a, as a technology can be absorbed even by neoliberal cultures and practices within workplaces and even universities, I suppose. Can you explain that a little bit? Because that that may come as a surprise to some. Yeah, I th I think that's precisely it. What you've you, what you've pointed out there is the exploitation of a set of ideas and putting them to use for different purposes towards different ends. Um, and a distinction I draw in the book in order to understand this is between what I call sati less mindfulness and a Buddhist mindfulness, which is steeped, which comes from the idea of sati. And um, maybe the simplest way of thinking about it is that in, in a Buddhist practice, um, the, the uh, mindfulness is not separable from ethics. It's not separable from ontology. It cannot be extracted from on the nature of being, which is empty and relational. And it cannot be extracted from ideas of ethics, which are ethics that are of responsibility that arise because of our relationship with the world, our, our deep interrelationality. But sati-less mindfulness has separated the tool, the practice of sitting and clearing the mind and focusing the mind from both ethics and ontology. Um, and this is the kind of mindfulness that is called in some of the American literature, Mac mindfulness. Um, it's become kind of standardized and is packaged and sold in, you know, corporate settings and universities and schools and so on, and is offered as a way of solving every single human dilemma. 
um, that we have. Um, so, uh, and as a Zen practitioner, I've been somewhat concerned about, about this process, but also about the assumption that's, that's made by, as you rightly point out, by most people that this form of mindfulness that we find everywhere now is actually Buddhism, that this is all Buddhism is. Um, but how I think about it now is that it really doesn't have anything to do with Buddhism. This sati less mindfulness it doesn't really have anything to do with Buddhism, even though it's often presented as being, you know, an ancient teaching from the East. Um, and you will often find statues of the Buddha and so on, you know, decorating the websites and so on. Um, so I, th I think your distinction that you made there in the introductions is absolutely correct. Right. So what you're suggesting is that what the mindfulness practice is abstracted and kind of radically instrumentalized within institutions, um, it actually becomes part of the, uh, uh, the neoliberal therapy culture, which is really inviting people to discipline themselves as part of a disciplinary uh, mechanism to adapt to possibly uh, unsustainable or unjust structures. Yes, so they they learn to become more resilient. They learn to learn to sort of regulate their emotions. Um, they learn to kind of the ideas about correcting your thinking that the problem is your thought process. You know, so so uh, all of those are elements of mindfulness that are taught, um, and they are put to good use in neoliberal workplaces or universities or public life. Anish Ward, thank you very much. It's been a, a great pleasure.